Well, as we wrap up our series of messages on what it means to gather here at Rio, I want to take this conversation, which until now has really been focused exclusively on this hour, and I want to expand it to include the entire day. In other words, I want to come around this idea that not just this hour, but this whole day belongs to God. And I want to talk not only about what it is that we are and are not to do in this hour, but what it is that we are and are not to do in this whole day. And I want you to walk away understanding all that that is, but also understanding that this is a day that is designed for your freedom. It's designed of God to set us free. And what's kind of ironic about it is that his freedom comes as we obey one of his commandments. And commandments are not generally speaking something that we associate with freedom. When you were a kid and you were trying to sneak out the door because your room has not been cleaned for the last 19 days, and for the last 19 days your mother has said, thou shalt clean thy room, and she caught you just as you're leaving to go play with your buddy down the road, and she said, no, sorry, bud, we've been having a long conversation about this, and now you need to go clean your room, you were not exactly filled with a sensation of liberation. You went to your room in great protest and you took a 20-minute project and you made it three hours long and you made all kinds of noise and slammed your door and you did the illegal lock-the-door thing and all of that kind of stuff, trying to make everyone else as miserable as you and yet you still had to do it, so it didn't work. Give it up. But you weren't free, right? And it made no sense to you. It's your room. You liked it, messy. Why make your bed? It takes me all night to get my bed just where I want it, and then we got to mess it up by making it, and then... We don't associate commands with freedom, but what about if you lived on a busy street like I do? I live on Bayview Drive. Or maybe you lived kind of like at a corner lot, you know, and, and you know that it's a blind corner. In other words, as the cars come whipping around the corner, and they do, they can't see what's around the corner until they're pretty much there, and mom and dad came to you and said, look, I'm going to place a restriction on you. I'm going to limit where you can and cannot play. I'm going to give you a command, and here it is. Thou shalt not play in the street. And you're like, oh, man, you know, how can I not play in the street? And my friends want to play in the street. And how can we play street hockey if we're not in the street? And, and, and don't do it. And as a kid, you felt restricted by that. But then you grew up, and you had kids, and what do you tell them? I mean, aside from clean your room. Don't play in the street. Why? Because your understanding of that command has matured as you have matured. And you realize, okay, yeah, it places a restriction, but it restricts in order to set free. It takes away from me, absolutely, but it takes away only so that in return it can give something of far, far greater value. And that's the way the commands of the Lord work too. You know, God is not the cosmic killjoy. He does not delight and sit up in heaven and call, you know, councils of angels together. And he says, okay, here's the deal. I'm going to come up with this completely arbitrary command. No one is going to understand it. It's not going to make any sense to anyone. And I'm just going to drop it on humanity. And we're going to just watch what happens because this is going to be funny. He's not arbitrary. And he's not unloving. The God who created us comes to us, and He knows us better than we know ourselves, and He gives commands to us that restrict us, that set boundaries around us in certain areas and issues of our lives, but He only does that in order to bless us, in order to free us, in order to protect us, in order to liberate us. He takes away from us one thing that He might give back to us, something in return of far, far greater value. That's the way the commands of the Lord work, and... That also is the way that this command 
regarding this day works. He gives us a command, not just about this hour. He gives us a command about the whole day. And I want this morning, to the degree that we can, to receive it the way the Israelites of old received it, okay? We're not going to be able to roll in Mount Sinai. I understand that. We're not going to then be able to consume the mountain with the fiery presence of God so that the mountain smokes, so that the earth quakes. There's not going to be the cloud of the presence of God. There's not going to be lightning. There's not going to be thunder. You will not hear the voice of the Lord coming out of the mouth of the Lord and thundering so loud that the earth moves and the people of God say to Moses, hey, you know what? Next time, just have God tell you what it is that he wants to tell us and then you tell us because if he tells us again, we're afraid we will not live through the experience. But we can stand, right? So I'd like you guys to stand, and I want you to hear the command of the Lord regarding this day. Exodus 20, beginning in verse 8, it begins like this. He says, remember the Sabbath day, the Sabbath day to keep it holy. He wants us to understand something about this day. This is a separate day. This is a different day. It's a day that is other than any other day of the week. It is unlike any other day of the week. He wants you to distinguish this day, to call it out, and to set it aside. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days, not five. Six, if you need it, days you shall labor and do all, not some, of your work. The seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. You may be seated. I want you to understand that this morning I'm going to make the argument that that commandment applies to me and that it applies to you. And I'm going to have to jump a few hurdles to do it because if you were listening, you heard the language, right? Sabbath day, seventh day. Remember the Sabbath day. That's not today, is it? No, that was yesterday. The Sabbath day is a Saturday. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Distinguish it. From every other day, six days, if that's what it takes, you shall labor. Do all of your work, not some or most of it, but the seventh. What day of the week is that? Saturday, isn't it? Today is the first day of the week. The seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. So what's the problem? The problem is that this commandment that I'm going to tell you and try to explain in a second belongs and is for us. 
Well, this commandment is clearly talking about the Jewish Sabbath, and frankly, as believers in Jesus, we don't have to keep the Jewish Sabbath, and we know that because the apostles had to deal with that issue among many others. I mean, one of the dynamics that's happening at the formation, if you will, of the New Testament church, you know, Jesus has lived, died, risen again from the dead. He's ascended into heaven. He's commissioned his apostles, and thousands upon thousands are coming to faith in Christ, initially most Jewish, but then as Paul in particular started kicking in, man, all of these Gentiles started started coming to Jesus, and everybody's asking all these questions about the Jewish ceremonial law. It's like, hey, I'm a Jew. I've been doing, you know, the dietary law of the Jews all my life, but I've been driving by Tom Jenkins for the last 43 years, and it smells pretty good. Now that I'm a Christian, is it pork sandwich time for me? Or, hey, I'm a Gentile. I work at Tom Jenkins. Do I have to quit my job? Do I have to stop eating this stuff? I mean, I'd probably live longer, but it'd be deprived. Seriously. What about the feasts? What about the festivals? What about the holy days? What about circumcision? Don't you think everyone wanted to know about that one? And what about the Sabbath? Is it a go or no-go? It's a no-go. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 2, verse 16. He says, therefore, let no one act as your judge. Hear that? In regard to what? To food or drink, dietary stuff. In respect to a festival or a new moon, the holy days, or a, could it be more clear? Or a Sabbath day. Things, he explains now, which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You're like, what does that mean? What it means is that this Jewish ceremonial law had the purpose of pointing to Christ. And now that Christ had come, lived, died, buried, resurrected from the dead, ascended, commissioned His apostles, come upon the people of God with the Spirit of God, now that Christ has come, they've served their purpose. They have fulfilled their mission. They're obsolete. And you don't have to keep them. And not only did the apostles teach that, but... That was their practice. They ate at Tom Jenkins, not the one up the street, but they ate with the Gentiles. They did. And they did not rest, and they did not gather, and they did not observe the Jewish Sabbath any longer as it's commanded in the fourth commandment. But they did rest and gather and observe the Sabbath on Sunday. Why? Because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead on a Sunday morning, and that event was so significant, it changed all of history, but just in terms of this context, that event was so significant that it took the day and the Sabbath of the people of God that was on Saturday, and it shifted it to Sunday. Sunday is the new Saturday. That's what I want you to see. It is the new Sabbath. It is the Christian Sabbath, and it is not a lesser day. It is a greater day, for it celebrates a much greater deliverance, and it, by the way, also offers a much, much, much greater freedom. It does apply. You know, one of the things you see happening as you go through the New Testament, and we've kind of given witness to that actually through this series, is you see the transference of a lot of the practices of the people of God in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant, if you will, 
with some of the practices of the people of God in the New Testament under the New Covenant. We saw that last week as we looked at the Lord's Supper. What is the Lord's Supper? It's the new Passover. Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb himself, whose blood doesn't cover the lintels and the doorposts of our homes, but covers over the sin of our hearts, doesn't spare us merely from death and judgment in this life in a temporal sense, but spares us from death and judgment for all of eternity. Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples. And he takes the elements of the Passover, the bread and the wine, and he starts a new thing. He says, guys, this is what this really means. He says, this bread is the bread of my body. It's broken for you. This wine is the wine of my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. It's the, it's the cup of the new covenant. As often as you eat this bread and drink this wine, you show forth the Lord's death until He comes again. See, the Lord's Supper is the new Passover. Baptism is the new circumcision. Even as the people in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant gave the sign of that covenant to their infant children and to anyone who came into their community by profession of faith who hadn't already been circumcised, which I'm guessing is pretty much everyone that came into their community, So we do in the New Testament, you know? I mean, on this side, we've got a new covenant on this side of Christ. But it functions the same way. We have a sign of that new covenant. That's baptism. And we apply that just as the Old Testament people did under the Old Covenant to our infant children and to anyone who comes into our community by a profession of faith who has not previously received the sign of baptism. You see the transference, and here's the deal. It's a greater sign, not a lesser sign. It celebrates a far greater covenant. And so it is with the Lord's, or so it is with Sunday. Sunday is the new Saturday. It's the new Sabbath. But there's a lot of transference of principles. There's a lot to be learned from Sabbath that was Saturday. So the Jewish Sabbath of old commemorated two things. First of all, it commemorated the example of rest that God gave us in creation. Listen again to the language. God says this, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy six days, not five. You shall labor and do all, not most of your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your cattle or your cat or your dog and even your ferret or the sojourner who stays with you. It is a big time break for everyone. Why? For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and He rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. You're like, yeah, but again, that's the Sabbath day, that's Saturday, it's the seventh day. That's fine, but Sunday is the new Saturday. It's the new Saturday. And also, did you notice what He grounds this commandment into? He grounds it into creation itself. He's saying, look, God built this principle into the very order of creation. One day of seven in rest, not even just one day of seven in rest, the seventh of seven in rest. It's pretty specific. He then codified it. He wrote it into law with the fourth commandment, but it has existed since the beginning of all things, you see. And here's what's beginning to happen to you if you're anything like me. At this point, you know, you're wanting to pull out your Blackberry and look at your calendar and try to figure out how in the world you are ever going to get everything that you need to get done, done in six days. You're feeling the squeeze. It's like, don't play in the street. And you're feeling like, man, there's nowhere else to play. I mean... This is restricting. 
It is. But it's a lot like don't play in the streets. You know, you resented it as a kid and then you repeat it. And as it's coming out of your mouth, you hear the voice of your dad, don't you? And you say it exactly the same way, same intonation, same reflection in your voice, just... It takes from you, no doubt. But it gives back so many far more significant things. So you're not to work on the Sabbath day. Now, there are recognized exceptions to this, but they're very narrow. Like if you're a doctor, you're in the healthcare profession, you work at a hospital, you're a, you know, you're a fireman, you're a police officer, and you have a job that absolutely has to get done, and it has to get done on Sunday as well as every other day of the week, and then hear this, and you have to be the one to do it. Because that's sort of the catch right there, isn't it? Well, then that's an exception. Works of necessity and mercy. The Lord healed on the Sabbath day. If your ox falls in a ditch, you know, get it out. But that's not most of us. Sunday is the new Saturday. It's the Christian Sabbath. On it, hey, you're not to work. That's what you're not to do. But what are you to do? Well, the Jewish Sabbath fold also commemorated God's deliverance of His people. That's true for us today, too. But listen to how it is that Moses states this. Deuteronomy 5, he's restating this commandment, okay? Beginning in verse 12, he says, a lot of it's going to sound familiar, then he's going to add something. He says, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it, you shall not do any work. And then here comes the list. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your cattle or the sojourner who stays with you so that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. He just plays this thing and teases it out in every direction to show you how expansive it is. And then Moses says this. He says, and you shall remember, this is what else you're to do on this day. This is what you are to do. I'm not to work. I am to do this. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, in the place where the mummies come from, in the land of the dead. You were in slavery and death, and the Lord your God, what? He delivered you. He brought you up out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day and the deliverance that they remembered all day on the Sabbath day then was the deliverance from Egypt. Man, our deliverance is so much bigger than that. The deliverance that we are called to dwell on in this day, not just this hour, the whole day, is a deliverance from slavery to sin and from eternal death that is affected through faith in the one who lived and died, was buried, rose again from the dead, and called us into an everlasting relationship with Him by His Spirit, giving us the very faith by which we embrace Him and receive His salvation. The idea is that the focus not just of this hour but of every hour of this day is to be on the deliverance of the Lord your God. And I want you to think about that just in light of all the things that we've said in this series because there's kind of a marvelous coherence, you know? Week one, gathering is about God. Now God's saying, guess what? Not just the hour, whole day. 
Wow. Week two gathering tells God's story. What's that? It's the gospel. Okay, and? And that's his story of deliverance. And we're to focus on that in this hour and the whole day. Week three gathering renews God's promises. How? Through the sacraments, which look backwards on this deliverance that we're to focus on all day in which we presently enjoy the benefits of this deliverance that we're to focus on all day, and in in which we also look forward to the consummation of all things and the return of the deliverer himself upon whom we're to focus all day. The Sabbath in both the Old Testament and the New Testament is a day in which the people of God rest from their ordinary labors, gather for the corporate worship of God, and reflect on the deliverance of the Lord all day. And in doing so, are set free. And here's the question. From what? Set free from what? Because right now, all I'm feeling is the squeeze. You're feeling that, right? I made a list. Let me share it with you. It's non-exhaustive, meaning there's probably a thousand things not on my list. That's just kind of what I thought of. I think that this is a day that God has designed for us to set us free, first of all, from self-sufficiency. It is a reminder every single week that our existence, that our security, and that our salvation, not just spiritually, but also physically, just making it. And what are we going to eat even down to that essential level is dependent ultimately not on my efforts, not on my strength, not on my ingenuity, not on my ability, but ultimately is the Lord my God who is to provide for me. Now, that does not excuse us to be lazy. He's spoken against that already. Six days you shall labor. It's designed to set us free from self-sufficiency to break us from this idea that it's all on me. It's not. But as I thought about that, I realized, you know, the reality is most of us don't work seven days a week just to put bread on the table, do we? Most of us work seven days a week to satisfy other appetites to satisfy an appetite for status, to satisfy an appetite for recognition, to satisfy an appetite for pleasure, for stuff, for things, for acclaim, you know, to satisfy an appetite that just desperately wants somebody to notice us and to say, you know what? You are valuable. You are worthy of recognition, of notice, of praise. And so we try to strive and strive to gain and gain and accumulate and achieve and accumulate and achieve and accumulate and achieve, trying to satisfy something that we, we can't satisfy that way, but, but you get the idea. There's some appetite within us that this day is designed to single out and say, no. It's designed to set us free from these unholy appetites, and it is designed also to set us free to develop an appetite for the only one who can satisfy us, and then to give us the time to satisfy that appetite. I cannot tell you how many people I have talked to and how many times I've said the same thing, who have said to me, you know, oh, man, you know, I just wish I had time to study the, you know, the Word of the Lord the way you do, Tom, you know. I wish I could just dig in. I wish I could pray. I wish I could. I wish I could. And then our family and we could, and I could spend time. And I can't, you know, but I'm so busy. I just can't even get a devotion in a week. And I want to go, well, wait a minute. What about Sunday? Because 
This isn't just his hour, it's his whole day. It's the purpose of this whole day. He's yanking us out of the world and all of its entanglements, and he's saying, you're mine all week, but let's focus on that today. And I'm not saying you can't go out and ride your bike or go water skiing or go out in the boat or any of those kinds of things. Frankly, I think those are restful things. My grandparents would freak out over that. But I think you can find rest doing those things, but rest is not the only issue. Rest is not the focus, and yet it becomes the focus. And so then what happens is we say, all right, I'm not going to work on that day. That's good. Check that off the list. I'm going to come to church on that day, commanded to do that. I'm going to gather. That's awesome. And then we fill up the rest of our day with recreation focused mostly on ourselves. And then later we complain that we're too busy to spend time with the Lord. No, we're not. We're not when we really examine it. I think this day also is designed to set us free from idolatry, from the worship of the gods of this world, the little puny gods, the little helpless gods that we pursue primarily with incessant effort, through incessant labors. And so then it's designed also to spare us of the consequences of those pursuits. You're like, what are they? Well, let me give you just one example from Psalm 115. Beginning in verse 1, the psalmist says, he says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. He's speaking here in poetic language, okay? Poetic language, as the Germans call it, is thick, it's dense, it's packed, it says a lot because it speaks in images and ideas and pictures. He's beginning to paint a picture of God who alone is worthy of, of receiving glory because of His loving kindness, one of the most significant words in the whole Bible. It speaks of His covenantal love for His people, His faithfulness to us, His mercies, His grace, His truth, He says, which means what? He's a God who communicates. He's a God who acts. He's a God who moves. He's beginning to give you a concept of who God is, and then He compares that With the gods of the nations, he says, why should the nations whose idolatry he's going to compare to the worship of the true and the living God, he says, why should the nations say this? And here's their criticism. Where now is their God? Because I don't see him. I can't walk up to him and give him a little, you know, thing at his altar. I can't touch him. And what is his answer? He says, but our God is in the heavens. Now, it's poetry, right? Where are the heavens? You look up. Our God is transcendent. He's above all things. All things are below and beneath Him. He transcends all things. He governs over all things. He sees all things. He ordains all things. Our God is living and active and alive. He sees, He hears, He smells, He tastes, He touches in that sense. He is sensible. Our God is in the heavens and He is altogether sovereign. He does whatever He pleases. And then He says, their idols, He says, their idols are silver and gold. Now, what are silver and gold? And what is He saying about silver and gold? because it speaks to the idolatry of our day too. Silver and gold are minerals, right? I mean, they, where are they found? Because they aren't transcendent. You know where they're found? Beneath your feet. 
What is he saying about silver and gold and everything that we make from it? It's beneath us. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, what a difference. And not only is it beneath us, but we've got to dig it up. It's powerless. It cannot, like Christ, come forth from the ground, can it? It has no power. We have to dig it up. And then having dug it up, we have to purify it. God purifies us. Having then purified it, we've got to shape it and make it into something. We can see, smell, hear, taste, and touch, but cannot see, smell, hear, taste, and touch us. It's pitiful. It loses its allure. He says, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. We make our own God and then we bow down to what we've made. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. If silver and gold is your God, do not ever expect to hear a word from it. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They do not see you in need. They have ears, but they cannot hear. Cry out as you will. They are deaf. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They cannot sense your presence. They have hands, but they cannot feel, and neither can they reach out to help. They have feet, but they cannot walk, and so they cannot come to your aid. They cannot make a sound with their throat. And then he says this, and this is the key. He says, those who make them will be like them, dead. It's fascinating. Those who make them will be like them, everyone who trusts in them. What is he saying? He's giving us a worship principle, which is that you and I become what we worship. And if we worship the gods of this world, we will become just like them, fleeting, fickle, untrustworthy, insensible, and insensitive to others, incapable of producing anything that lasts, and just like everything else in this world, destined for judgment. Well, that sounds like a program I want to get involved in. But that's the kind of program this day is meant to set you free from, to jar you out of, to jar me out of. It calls us to worship Christ, who alone is worthy of our worship. He transcends all things. And we're to reflect not just this hour, but this day on Him. This day is also designed to set us free, I think, from the fallacy that we belong to ourselves. You know, I mean, because we think that we do. We have our calendar and our schedule and our goals and our agendas an hour and hour and hour and hour and hour, and it takes us over. God is saying, no, 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 I'm going to have you a little bit reminder here every week. My day. And you belong to me. It's kind of like the tithe. You know, we bring 10% of our income because we're saying, God, you own 100%. Here is a little bit that sort of acknowledges that you own it all. Okay, Lord, you own all my time, all my days, all my life, all my activities. And every week on this day, I will acknowledge that I give you your day. Last thing I have written down is that this day is designed to set us free also from the fallacy that all of us are just caught up in a meaningless flow of days that, you know, in reality are going nowhere. We're kind of like the guinea pig, you know, running in a wheel. You've seen that, right? That guinea pigs? 
just runs faster and faster and faster and faster and faster and looking around and going, man, the scenery just is not changing. Not getting anywhere. Don't you ever feel like that? I think everybody feels like that. And life just keeps getting faster and faster and faster. And we become more and more tired. This weekly pattern of six days and a day of rest, and six days and a day of rest, and six days and a day of rest. Do you see that? It's what's called the Janus Day. You've heard the January, right? It's the month that stands between two years. It's the day that stands between two weeks, six days and a day of rest. It's the pivot day. It's the day that brings one thing to a close and begins the next. This pattern of six days and a day of rest and six days and a day of rest is meant also to remind us that history has a beginning and it has an end, and ultimately everything is moving somewhere. And it's moving toward the culmination of all things in Christ. And I could go on and on, but the bottom line is that the Sabbath day is not merely to be a day that we set aside each week. It is to be a day that comes along and sets us aside each week. It's a day in which we become disentangled from all of the entanglements of the week, whose tentacles seem to reach into every area and facet of our lives and psyche. And we focus on the Lord. We receive the imagination of heaven as we pull out of the little tiny imagination of earth. Now, that's a great gift. That's a great blessing. That's a great, in fact, a series of great freedoms that is needful for the health of our souls. And that's what the Lord calls us to in this day. He gives us a commandment, and it takes away, doesn't it? It does, but it returns to us so many things that are so much more significant. So here's the deal. Don't play in the street, okay? And give God His day. It's His day. All of it. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You. Um, God, we thank You for this day. And I pray, Lord, that as You mature our understanding of it, You would make us sincerely thankful, all the more thankful. God, that as we seek by Your Spirit to be obedient to You and what we are and are not to do in this day, that, that You might be faithful to bless us to draw near to us as we draw near to You. God, I pray that this would be part of the reframing of the conversation about gathering and about worship, about the significance of what we're called to, about all the blessings that You hold out to us, about the preeminence that You are to enjoy for Your glory and for our good as You've constructed it in every day of every one of our lives. We thank You for Your good graces and even, Lord, for Your commandments. They don't come from an evil dictator or a tyrant who seeks to interfere. They come from a sovereign, all-knowing, all-loving Father 
who loved so much he gave his son to purchase us that we might be his. And so, God, I pray your blessing on this people this day. I ask, God, that we might leave and consider your deliverance, that we might celebrate in this day the freedoms that are ours, that are purchased not by our efforts, but in spite of them, given freely through faith in the one who purchased them all, who is Jesus. Give us a vision of him today in our rest and in all that we do, that we might live to give him greater glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.